the Old and the New. Matthew chapter 9, 14 through 17. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 9, 14 through 17. So we continue on in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. If you don't have a Bible here, if your phone is dead, we do have some paper Bibles in the back uh, on that table there. You're welcome to take one of those and keep it. Uh, there's no greater gift we would love to give you than that, than uh, the, the Word of God. Never runs out of batteries either, by the way, plus about paper copies. Matthew chapter 9, 14 through 17. Well, we've been going through Matthew's Gospel for, uh, again, some time, but in the most recent weeks, we've seen Jesus start to interact with more and more different groups of people, right? Matthew's starting to give us specific groups that Jesus is engaging with and coming into contact with. First, he's just interacting with general crowds. But as we go on, we see Jesus interacting with tax collectors, with sinners, with Pharisees. And now in this morning's text, Jesus is going to come into contact with the disciples of John the Baptist. Disciples of John the Baptist. And, and through this encounter with John the Baptist's disciples, Jesus is going to emphasize the radical newness of God's covenantal plan that Jesus is the king of the kingdom of heaven is bringing to God's people. Now this morning's text, right, we, we have to understand there's, there's different uh, uses for scripture, right? Um, some parts of scripture are very applicational, right? Do not lie to each other. Okay, that's pretty applicational. That tells us how to live. This morning's passage is a bit more theological. It helps us understand um, more deeply, I, I think we could say, about the overarching story of the Bible, which is very, very important for us. Sometimes we just focus on the rules, and we find ourselves having no idea what the Bible's really about. Well, this morning's text is focusing on that. It's, it's less about how to live and more about how to understand the great climax of redemptive history in Jesus Christ. Let's read our passage starting in verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put in old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Let's ask for God's help as we come to his word. Our great God, we thank you for your word, for the scriptures, for the Bible. Lord, that you have given us a, a holy, a perfect, an inspired and written record in human language that we can understand. Yes, about how you desire us to live. Yes, about how one might be saved in Christ. But Lord, also about your amazing redemptive work throughout history. Father, we pray that you would give us a better understanding of your word today, that we would understand the, the narrative, the storyline of Scripture. And Lord, that as we do that, we would see more and more of your gracious character. And that that, in turn, Lord, would bring us to worship you. Remind us, Lord, of our need for your grace and help us to understand the words of your Son here today. We ask for your Holy Spirit to come and to help us, to teach us and to Make us more like Christ. We ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. 
Now, as we moved into uh, Matthew chapter 9, um, we're, we're entering a, a part of Matthew's gospel that's very chronological. It's very chronological. Ever since Jesus came back from the Gadarenes, where he cast the demons out of those two men in a herd of pigs, Matthew's been going through a very fast-paced account of Jesus' activities and interactions. Right? The pace of the story is picking up a little bit here. And we saw last week the amazing account of Jesus calling Matthew the tax collector to be a disciple. And how Matthew, out of gratitude, out of excitement, threw a party. He threw a feast. And he invited all of his friends who were tax collectors and sinners. He invited them to come meet Jesus. And the Pharisees uh, approached Jesus and they complained to his disciples about, you know, why is your teacher hanging out with these people? Why is he eating with these kinds of people? And Jesus, of course, if you remember, rebukes the Pharisees and emphasizes why he came, to call and save sinners. Not the righteous, but sinners. But surprisingly, the Pharisees are not the only critics of Jesus. Matthew tells us, in verse 14, that the disciples of John come up to Jesus. Matthew uses the word then at the very beginning of the verse, and that, that indicates to us this is a, a chronological flow. Right after this feast in Matthew's house, Jesus is approached by his disciples, and they have a question about fasting. That's our first point. These first two verses, 14 and 15, are going to deal with feasting and fasting. The disciples of John ask Jesus, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? That's their question for Christ. Now again, they've just come out of Matthew's house. They've just enjoyed a, a very nice spread, I'm sure, at Matthew's table. They've been feasting. They've been feasting and celebrating. But it seems from our text that this may have occurred on a fasting day, where the rest of the Jews in the community were fasting. You see, uh, the, the only time in God's law that fasting is commanded is on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. But into the first century Judaism, right into that period of time, uh, they, they, they would eventually start to develop a tradition of regular bi-weekly fasting. They would fast on Mondays and Thursdays, regularly, religiously. And it seems that Jesus and his disciples have been enjoying this meal, very likely on a Monday or a Thursday. And the disciples of John the Baptist, who also were fasting, it appears, approach him about this. Now it's interesting that the disciples of John, they lump themselves into the same group as the Pharisees, don't they? They say, we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples, Jesus, they, they don't. And one theologian suspects that the Pharisees may have actually been trying to stir up the disciples of John against Christ, that they're trying to uh, put little seeds in the, the, the thoughts of the disciples of John to go and critique Christ in this way. And it's hard to say. But there's another question that this raises too. Why don't they go ask John? These are John's disciples, right? Why don't they go ask John the Baptist? But we have to remember back in Matthew chapter 4, John was arrested. So John's in jail at this point. John's not around. The disciples of John have been on their own for, for some time now. And we know John the Baptist himself, of course, was not at all opposed to Jesus, nor did he teach contrary to Jesus. But it seems that his disciples are maybe trying to figure out what's going on. They don't quite understand what's happening. And they, they're struggling a little bit to understand not just who Jesus is, but why he's here. They're having some trouble Right, if you remember, the, the message of John the Baptist was one of repentance and one in which he preached to the nation of Israel, repent, turn back to your God, be baptized as a baptism of repentance, and fasting goes right along with that. 
the disciples of John seem to see themselves as traditional Jews who want to purify Judaism. They want to reform Judaism, right? Uh, maybe perhaps seeing themselves close to the Pharisees in this agenda. Perhaps closer to the Pharisees than to Jesus. The Pharisees would fast as an outward sign of piety, and the disciples of John would, would do it as an act of repentance or mourning over the sin of Israel. But nonetheless, they're both fasting. They have that practice in common, and that's the basis for the question. The disciples of Jesus are the odd ones out. And the disciples of John, again, have seen them feasting. Everybody else is hungry. So why is there this difference? Why is there this difference? And as always, Jesus has an answer for the disciples of John. Uh, but Jesus answers their question with a question, another classic move from Jesus. He, uh, asks, he asks them a question in return in verse 15. He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? He, he introduces this analogy of a wedding. He brings up this picture of a wedding in order to teach John's disciples. And he asks them, Basically, right, in, 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 in common parlance, would it make sense for wedding guests to mourn while they're in the presence of the groom? Would it make sense for them to mourn there in the presence of the groom? And weddings in Jesus' day were much different than in our day. In our day, we have a, a usually a half-day event, right? Usually a half-day event. But in Jesus' day, weddings lasted for seven days. It was a week-long process, a time of continual feasting and celebration, right? That sounds exhausting to me, but... They, they did that regularly. Weddings were actually so culturally important, right, in, in Jewish society that the rabbis, while they were teaching a, a class on Torah to their students, would stop the class to have their students come out and greet a wedding party as it came down the street, right? Weddings were very important occasions. And they were occasions of great joy, of great celebration. And while the bridegroom was there, that means the wedding was going on. The wedding is in full swing. There would be no excuse in this kind of event for mourning or fasting or sadness. That, that would be out of place at a wedding. That wouldn't make sense at a wedding. That wouldn't be right. And so Jesus makes this question to John's disciples. Would you find sad, mourning wedding guests at a wedding while the bridegroom is there? And the answer, of course, is no. No. That wouldn't make any sense. It would be inconsistent. Well, in this analogy, of course, Jesus is the bridegroom. He's referring to himself here as the bridegroom. The wedding guests are his people. And he's actually going to make a very important and very deep point here to John's disciples. Because his reference to himself as the bridegroom is something that goes much deeper than just an offhand cultural reference. It is an allusion to a number of Old Testament passages that refer to God as the bridegroom and his people as his bride. It's a picture of their covenantal and loving relationship that, that they were to have. A major theme of Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. Joel Beakey writes that God's relationship with His people is a love story in which His undeserved kindness is repaid by their infidelity until His grace breaks their hearts and brings them home again to live in covenant with Him. The Old Testament is often cast in wedding language. Right? God is the bridegroom of His people all throughout the Old Testament. Now turn with me to Hosea chapter 2. We can see this. Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. <clears throat> 
the whole, uh, the whole really scene of Hosea is, is cast in this uh, picture of a, of, of a husband and a wife. But we see this very clearly in these two verses here, verse 19 and 20. God is speaking to his people, and he says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And that betrothal there is, is um, similar to engagement today, but different. But it is a, it is a word that points towards marriage, right? that points towards a wedding. And God is describing himself as the one who is betrothing his people to himself. That is wedding language, marriage language. Or Isaiah 54, 5. Since we're in the Old Testament, just go ahead and turn there. Isaiah 54, verse 5. Again, God speaks to his people. And he says this to them in verse 5. He says, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. There again, we have that marriage, covenantal, wedding language in reference to the relationship between God and his people. So when Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom, he's actually pulling out an analogy that's woven all throughout the Old Testament scriptures that these disciples of John probably would have been familiar with. And as we consider Jesus' reference to himself as the bridegroom, really we are led to another subtle claim from Jesus to his deity. He is saying, I am the bridegroom. Remember all those passages in the Old Testament about the, the marriage relationship between God and his people? Well, that's me. That's what he's saying to them here. Jesus is the God of Israel in the midst of his people. And think about the kind of response this should have produced. Think about the kind of response this should have produced. In, in fact, John the Baptist himself, the teacher of these disciples, right, who, who approached Jesus uh, in John chapter 3, refers to Jesus as the bridegroom. And then he says that the bridegroom's presence was an occasion for joy. He, he says in John 3, 29 and 30, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, that's John, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. What was the response people were to have that John had to the presence of the bridegroom in their midst? It was joy. It was joy. It was celebration. That's what they should have been doing. But for the disciples of John, there's a disconnect somewhere along the line. They're focused on fasting. You don't fast when you're celebrating. You don't fast when you're happy. Right? That was an act that symbolized mourning and repentance. And that's what they think Jesus' disciples should be doing when they themselves should have been rejoicing and celebrating at the bridegroom being with them. Their own teacher referred to Christ this way. God was visiting his people. Can you think of a greater reason for Israel to rejoice? Think about it. Well, Jesus is with his disciples while the king of the kingdom of heaven is on earth, while the Messiah is among his people, that is not a reason for solemn mourning and fasting, but for joyful celebration. Right? Just as a wedding is a time not for mourning and fasting, but for celebration. One commentator says, while mourning may have been an appropriate marker while Israel waited patiently for its rescue by God, the time had moved from that time of waiting to that of fulfillment. The appropriate mood is one of celebration. Right? Jesus essentially is saying to the disciples of John, 
I, the Messiah, the hope and God of Israel, I have arrived. Be glad. Right? God had not forsaken his people. They didn't need to wait any longer for their deliverer to come. He was there. They should have been rejoicing. But Jesus doesn't abolish fasting either. He doesn't say, well, there's no reason to ever fast again. Look what he says in verse 15. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. There will be a time, there will be an appropriate and legitimate time for Jesus' disciples, for his people, to mourn, to fast. Those days will come, he says, when the bridegroom will be taken away, and then the guests will mourn, they will fast, they will go back to that appropriate action when the wedding is over and the feasting is stopped. But there's a subtle meaning here too. Uh, the word taken away that Jesus uses kind of has this underlying sense of a violent and unwelcome removal. With a possible allusion to Isaiah 53, 8, which speaking of the Messiah says that by oppression and judgment he was taken away. This is a reference here that Jesus is making to his arrest and crucifixion that is to come. He hasn't hinted at that yet throughout the whole Gospel of Matthew, but now he has. The time in which he would be arrested, killed, buried, that would be an appropriate time of mourning, of sadness, of fasting for the disciples. It would be right and appropriate to respond with mourning at such a time. And I'm sure that the disciples of John, they could probably understand this and relate to this to a degree because what had happened to their own teacher? He had been arrested and would be executed by King Herod. So at that time, when the bridegroom was taken away, fasting would not be inconsistent. It would not be inappropriate. Jesus' point to the disciples of John is not that fasting is bad or irrelevant, and that's why his disciples aren't doing it, but rather that there is a time and a place for it, and that it is something for times of solemnity and mourning, not for times of celebration. And since the Messiah had come, since God was in the midst of his people to deliver them, that was a time for celebrating not for mourning and fasting. And, and this kind of reveals to us something about John's disciples. Um, they seem to have a potentially larger misunderstanding about the newness of what God was doing in Christ. This isn't just a misunderstanding about fasting, but they're actually misunderstanding the plan of God in redemption. Right? They, they don't understand that there is something old and something new. And that's where Jesus points their attention Next, in verses 16 and 17, something old and something new. One of the biggest misunderstandings that people have about the Bible is that it is a book of rules, and that's it. You ever heard, you know, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth, right? You ever heard that before? Um, and while it's true that the Bible does contain God's law, right, it does contain commands for us how to live, for life and godliness, and those are important. But if that's all we focus on, we miss the fact that the Bible is primarily a story about God's redemptive plan. It is a story, not a rule book. It's a story with a rule book, but primarily it is, it's, a, it's a story, right? Beginning with creation, ending with new creation. And in these next two verses, Jesus is going to use two word pictures, right? We could even call them parables to help the disciples understand that the next chapter in the story of God's redemptive plan is unfolding right before their very eyes. And that fasting 
It's not going to take on the same role in this chapter. It's, it's maybe not even consistent. The first picture Jesus uses in verse 16 is that of an unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Right? Jesus describes a scenario in which you have a, a, an old piece of clothing with a hole on it and some new cloth that has not been shrunk. Right? This old garment needs to be patched, and we buy our own clothes. Uh, you know, Not many of us make our own clothes anymore or do patches, even though some very skilled people do. Um, but that wasn't the case in Jesus' day. Right? They would repair their own clothes all the time. So they would buy cloth. Cloth makers would clean cloth, they would bleach it, they would wash it to pre-shrink it, to make it ready for use in clothing. Uh, and if this process would, what was done, you could put that cloth on an old garment, and there wouldn't be any shrinkage. Right? You could put it over a hole, there wouldn't be any shrinkage. But if you put unshrunk cloth over an old garment, as soon as you washed it, that cloth is going to shrink and rip that old garment even more. Right? Jesus says the tear is going to be worse than before. It's going to create a bigger hole. That's why Jesus says you'd never mix the two. It would be foolish. It would have negative results to mix that unshrunk cloth with an old garment. They're not compatible. Right? They can't be used together. And the second picture Jesus gives us is that of new wine and old wineskins. And it's sort of a similar picture to the previous one. In Jesus' day, uh, the majority of the fermentation process of wine was done in wineskins. Bags right, made of, of animal skin. They were airtight. And, and it was very important that new wineskins were used for new wine because as that uh, juice fermented, it produces gas, right? It, it has off gases, which causes those bags to expand. Well, new wineskins, they're soft, they're flexible, they're stretchy, so they could handle that. They wouldn't burst. But old wineskins were hard, they were brittle, they weren't flexible. And the pressure of that gas would eventually cause the seams to rip and that wineskin would burst open. You'd lose all the wine, right? A total loss. New wine and old wineskins are incompatible. You can't mix them, right? Um, to relate them wrongly is going to cause problems. Why is Jesus bringing this up to the disciples of John? What's the connection here? Well, Jesus is saying that the old and the new cannot be mixed. You can't hold on to them both. They cannot be used together side by side. Okay? And Jesus is actually looking beyond fasting to the bigger problem that the disciples of John seem to have. Jesus is describing the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And when I use those terms, I'm using them right out of the book of Hebrews, right? Where the, the author of Hebrews describes the Old Covenant as the Mosaic Covenant, made at Mount Sinai, with Israel, 613 commandments, sealed by the blood of animals, right? And the New Covenant is the covenant inaugurated with Christ, sealed by His blood, right? Made with his people of every nation, every tribe, every tongue. As we dig into this, let me, let me note something again, right? This passage is more about understanding God's story than how to live. It is a, it's a theological point that Jesus is making here. Why does theology matter? Uh, sometimes we only focus on application, but that impoverishes us greatly, right? So why does theology matter? Well, first, Jesus is talking about it, so we should pay attention. And second, without theology, you're actually not going to understand your Bible. You're not going to understand the story of the Bible, and vice versa, right? We need good doctrine to understand the Bible, and we need the Bible to help us develop good doctrine. Now, one of the biggest questions people have when they look at the relationship between the Old and New Covenant is, is how do they relate? How do they relate? What is the relationship between the two? And that is a major question Jesus is ask, uh, addressing here. So notice a couple things. Notice a couple things. First, 
there's a, a slight sense of continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. There's a sense of similarity here. Okay, in both these parables, Jesus tells us, you're dealing with the same stuff. Cloth, wine, wineskins, right? Jesus doesn't say, hey, you, you wouldn't sew a banana onto an old garment, right? He's talking about cloth, he's talking about wine and wineskins. Um, there's a similarity in the sense that in both the Old and New Covenants, God is making a covenant with a group of people who are defined in a particular way. But that's about where the similarity and continuity ends between the Old and New Covenant. There are major differences between the two that cannot coexist. This is going to be big for the disciples of John in a minute. Now, when I, when I say that, when I say that we, we can't hold the two side by side, I'm not saying that we get rid of the moral law expressed in the Ten Commandments. Right? That's eternal, abiding. That's not exclusive to the Old Covenant. Uh, it doesn't mean the things we see in the Old Testament about the character of God are jettisoned when we look at the New Covenant. Not at all. The major differences between these two covenants come down to two things. Their conditions and their purposes. Their conditions and their purposes. <clears throat> and when we look at these two things, the incompatibility that Jesus is touching on becomes even more evident. First, the conditions of these two covenants are not the same. They're not the same. You don't relate to God the same way <clears throat> under the old covenant as you do in the new. Now turn to Exodus chapter 19 for a minute. <coughs> Exodus chapter 19. This is the chapter in which God makes the covenant with Israel, with the nation of Israel. This is where the old covenant is inaugurated. It's, it's sealed. Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 6. Israel is camped before Mount Sinai. All the people are there. And the Lord calls to Moses and gives him a message to bring the people of Israel. And here's what he says, starting in verse 4. <clears throat> you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Notice something very important. There's a big word there, two letters. If. Right? If you will obey my voice, this covenant will stand. If you will do this, you will be in, my, uh, you, you will be in covenant relationship with me. If you obey my command. That's what God says, right? The Old Covenant was made with the nation of Israel. Their, their um, election was dependent upon their ethnicity in Abraham. And their continued covenantal relationship with God was dependent upon what? Their obedience. Their obedience, right? If you obey. This is a covenant of works. Covenant of works. In order to keep the covenant, you need to perform the works required by the covenant. Right? That's what maintains the covenant relationship here. Righteousness under the conditions of the Old Covenant, had to be obtained by obeying the law, by doing works of the law, which nobody could attain. Nobody could attain. Now, in contrast, turn over to Ephesians chapter 2, and look at how Paul describes the New Covenant. Look at the difference here in Ephesians chapter 2. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Paul writes, 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's a big contrast there, right? The old covenant is you will do this by your works, right? You'll maintain this by your works. You'll earn these blessings by your works of obedience. The new covenant says this is not according to your works. It's a gift of grace. It's a gift of grace. Our salvation has nothing to do with our obedience to the law, but upon God's gift. Right? The new covenant is a covenant of grace. Righteousness doesn't come by our works, but by God's gift. So we have a covenant of works, a covenant of grace. Those are very different systems of relating to God, aren't they? Very different systems of relating to God. And they are not systems that can coexist side by side. You can't hold on to both. Now, just for clarity's sake, what about people in the Old Testament, right? Does that mean they weren't saved? Well, not what that means. What it means is there are Israelites in the Old Testament living under both covenants in the sense of they're living under the time of the Old Covenant, but by their faith in God and His promises are saved by the New Covenant, right? The New Covenant, right, the, the cross is here at one point in time, but the salvation that the New Covenant brings is outside of time, we could say, right? It extends to both sides of the cross, right? It extends to both sides of the cross so that those who had faith in what they knew of God and His promises were redeemed and united to Him, not because of the Old Covenant, but because of the New Covenant, right? Just outside of time. But in the chronological flow of history, right, on a timeline, we cannot miss the newness and the difference of the New Covenant. It is different, right? So consider for a moment, you cannot be under the conditions of both covenants for salvation, right? You can't be under the covenants of righteous, or, excuse me, you can't be under the conditions of righteousness through works of the law and righteousness through faith in Christ. It's one or the other. It's one or the other, right? They are mutually exclusive. But what we can't miss is that the new covenant, as Hebrews 8, 6 says, is better than the old. It is superior to the old covenant. The fullness of the revelation of God's redemptive plan is happening here before the eyes of the people of Israel with the coming of Christ. This new covenant is coming. And, and yet this joyous occasion is obscured from them by their reliance upon works of the law under the old covenant, right? The disciples of John are looking the wrong direction. They're not looking to what is new and what's coming. They're looking back to the old covenant saying, we need to go back to that better. We need to be better at following the old covenant. They're not looking ahead to what Christ is doing and what Christ is bringing. But beyond that, there's another reason that the Old and New Covenant cannot coexist like new wine and old wineskins. And that comes down to the purpose of each of these covenants. Right? We've looked at the conditions, works versus grace, but they have a different purpose, a different function too. Right? The author of Hebrews tells us quite clearly that the Old Covenant was a foreshadow of the New. It was a foreshadow of the New, that it contained what we call types. It's like a hint of what is to come, right? A, a picture of what is to be fulfilled in the new covenant. For example, in, in, in Hebrews chapter 9, the author of Hebrews describes the tabernacle, the priesthood, the, you know, the worship of God in the temple, uh, the ark of the covenant, all those things for the nation of Israel under the old covenant. And then he goes on to say that these things are a shadow of the good things to come. They're a shadow. They're just a glimpse. 
but they themselves are not the good things to come. Right? Likewise, Paul in Colossians says that the Jewish holidays, the feast days of the Old Covenant, are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. They're shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You know, we have to realize, and what the disciples of John had to realize, is that uh, God's plan was never to have the Old Covenant be the ultimate covenant. The covenant with Israel was not the end goal, right? The New Covenant's not plan B because, you know, the Israelites didn't accept Christ. That's not the story of the Bible. The Old Covenant was always intended to point forward to the New Covenant. That was its purpose, to point forward to the need for a Messiah, for a Savior, not just for Israel, but for all nations. And we see this in Genesis 3.15, where right after the fall of man, God makes a promise to send the offspring of the woman who would crush Satan's head. That's not fulfilled in the Old Covenant. That's not fulfilled in the Old Covenant. It is fulfilled with the new, with Christ. He is the substance. Everything that comes before him points forward to him. But he is the fulfillment of all the promises in the Old Covenant. Right? He is the one who fulfills the law of the Old Covenant. It is all fulfilled in Christ. The new is there. The fulfillment is there. But the disciples of John don't realize this. <clears throat> right? They're living practically as if the Old Covenant was the goal. As if there was nothing better coming than what was given to Moses. But Jesus' point to them, right, as they ask this question about fasting, is that what he's come to do, and the covenant he's come to enact, and the kingdom that he's come to bring, is radically new. Radically new. Such that it is the complete fulfillment of the old. R.C. Sproul says that Christ had come to bring radical change, so radical it was no longer possible to continue with the old way. Again, the author of the Hebrews <clears throat> is describing the New Covenant, quoting from Jeremiah 31 about the forgiveness of sins this covenant would bring. And here's, here's how he describes this change in Hebrews 8.13. Here's what he says. This is such an important verse for understanding the storyline of the Bible. He says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. In, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Right? The old covenant is just that. It is the old garment. It is the old wineskin. It is worn out, obsolete. And in the plan of redemption, it has served its purpose. With the coming of Christ in the new covenant, the old covenant is no more. It is obsolete. It is gone. Now, it doesn't mean, of course, the Old Testament's not relevant and binding and just as authoritative as the New. It is. But we need to understand it serves a different purpose, right, than the New Covenant. And that we are not to put ourselves back under the Old Covenant because we have the fulfillment of it. Right? The Old Covenant was never designed to hold the grace of the New Covenant, that new wine, but to point forward to it. And in our text this morning, Jesus makes clear that he's bringing a new stage in redemptive history. And it is a stage that will eventually make the whole Old Testament system obsolete. There's not going to be a need for sinful human high priests offering animal sacrifices. 
There's not going to be a need anymore for a day of atonement, for fasting. There's not going to be a need anymore for a physical temple building. Right? The new covenant gives us a perfect high priest. It gives us a perfect sacrifice. And it makes the dwelling place of God not an architectural temple built by human hands, but a spiritual temple made of human beings and dwelt by His Spirit. You can't have both. Right? You can't have both. They can't exist side by side. One is the fulfillment of the other. As Charles Spurgeon says, Jesus came not to repair Israel's worn vesture, but to bring new robes. But it seems that the disciples of John missed this, right? They didn't realize who was in their midst, what he had come to do, and as a result, they're focused on the wrong thing. They're asking the wrong question. Right? They have one question they ask of Jesus here, and it's that. Why are your disciples not fasting? Not like, wow, Messiah, you're here. What are you going to do next, right? What? Fasting, fasting, right? They're, they're looking the wrong direction. Now, of course, as we come full circle, you may be wondering, well, what does that mean for me? Should I fast? Should I not fast? What's, right? There's a little application here, I guess. But Jesus' point in the text is, is not ultimately about fasting. It's not the point. But he doesn't prohibit fasting either, right? He does say there would be a time when that's appropriate, that time being when he's not with them. But, you know, if we are going to fast as Christians, which has a good, healthy, uh, spiritually beneficial place in the Christian life, we shouldn't do it as something to make ourselves ritually pure before God or, or do it as, as a, a, a commandment of God's law or an act of outward religious piety. But fasting can be a helpful way of growing in self-control. It is biblically patterned for us. It's a good way to turn our focus from the material, temporal aspects of this life to spiritual things and to grow in sanctification, right? The self-denial, that's a part of our discipleship. But um, let's zoom out for a minute. This period of time, right, as we wait for the return of the bridegroom, that is an appropriate time to occasionally fast, right? As we look forward to the joy of his return, just as Jesus fast, uh, feasted with his disciples in Matthew's house, so we, as redeemed, glorified sinners, made saints, will feast with him united with the bridegroom in a wedding feast. Isaiah describes this in Isaiah 25. We read it this morning, but it's so good. We'll read it again. He says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. No need for fasting, only feasting. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That's what the disciples of John should have been doing, right? And that's what we look forward to doing. So while we may fast now, let us never forget the newness of what God has done for us in Christ. And then let us look forward to that day when we will feast with him in his Father's kingdom. Let's pray. <coughs> our Lord and our God, we thank you for the new covenant. Lord, the old covenant served an important purpose in redemptive history, and Lord, it is still important for us today to understand. But Lord, we thank you that we are not under that covenant. 
that we are under the new covenant. A covenant in which there's the full forgiveness of our sins. A covenant in which we are united to our Savior by faith. A covenant in which we are the dwelling place of God. These are amazing realities, Lord, that you have brought about through your Son. Father, we pray that you would help us not to do what John the Baptist's disciples did in looking backwards in redemptive history, but Lord, let us look forward to the return of our Redeemer, to that day where we will feast with Him, where we will enjoy an eternity of celebrating the goodness of God, of worship, of holy joy. And Lord, in the meantime, let us reflect on our own sin and the sinfulness of the world in which we live. And Lord, those are appropriate things to fast over, to mourn over. But may we not do so losing sight of the promise of our full and final redemption at the return of our Lord when the bridegroom returns for us where we will enjoy that eternal wedding supper with him. Lord, thank you for the new covenant, for the forgiveness of our sins. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen.